Hi everyone, Raphael Harry here, and you're listening to White Label American, a podcast where we hear stories from an immigrant or two, sometimes more. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Okay, welcome to another episode of White Label American. Um, thank you all for your support. Uh, thank you for all those who send love and uh, giving us five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. And um, those who have been reaching out to me in private and um, on, uh, in public too. I appreciate the support and uh, keep doing what you're doing and invite your friends and share and um, yeah, just keep uh, spreading the love and those who share uh, about us on Twitter also who see everything and yeah, we just love it. So keep the love going and yeah, thank you. But so, you, you, you've not, you've not raised the important issue that they need to consider. Will you be around when that love arrives, or will you show up? <laughs> will you show up? <laughs> <laughs> oh man! <laughs> oh. I'm going to make you second guess. Oh, I'm going man. to make you second guess the decision to have me as a guest. Oh, we, we, we are not going to get the end of this. All right, all right. We'll, we'll, I'm, I'm going to keep getting get on this, but um, yeah. Um, my guest, yeah, I, I, I was, I, I have to own it. I was late. I was late to the recording. All right, I was late, and my guest is, yeah, Mizzy. He has turned it into a Nigerian versus. You, you'll find that Nigerian versus Ghanaian thing, but all right. So without much further ado, I hereby introduce our very special guest today. Um, he was born in um, Tamale, Ghana. Yep. He attended um, primary uh, school in, in Nigeria. Yep. In the north, in the northern part of Kano. You you, you know the, fu- the the funny thing. Yes. Anytime I meet a Nigerian and I tell them that I grew up in Kano. What? You grew up in Kano? I've never <laughs> met anyone. I've never <laughs> met anyone from Kano. <laughs> Well, that's true. As, as, especially the people from Lagos. Yeah. The people from Lagos as well. Like, what? Most people that I'm so used crazy. to actually went to, uh, attended university in Kano. In Kano, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I really, I think I've only met one person other than you who, who um, grew up. Who grew who, up in who, Kano. Who grew up in yeah. Kano, yeah. yeah so, um, uh, attended schooling, in, uh, primary schooling in Kano and then returned back to Ghana for. Uh, junior secondary and senior secondary education in Ghana before um, crossing the ocean yep. to the United States for college at Connecticut, New London, yep. and then New York City for university, uh, New York University. Yep, for business school. And he's also a um, holding member, a charter holding member of the CFA Institute. Yep. Um, his hobbies include, um, oh, well, according to his son, all, <laughs> always studying. Always, always studying. <laughs> always studying for boring exams. <laughs> that's that's the way he put it. Always studying uh, for boring exams. Well, according to the Eurobars, they'll say efico or more efico, which is um, like um, too smart. And, ah, uh, thank you. Um, thank you. Um, he was a radio DJ. For three years, we'll get to that also. Um, 
I did radio and then I discovered, well, you said we'll get to that. I discovered how much money DJs make. So I started DJing parties on campus. I started DJing parties on campus too. Uh, <laughs> and he also loves cooking and learning. Um, Brian is the co-founder and general partner of Refashion Ventures, a New York-based early-stage supply chain technology venture firm that is being built to invest in startups, refashioning global supply chains. Yep. Um, Brian is also the co-founder of the Worldwide Supply Chain Federation, um, a network of grassroots-driven communities of people who are obsessively enthusiastic about supply chain, innovation, and technology. Yep. I'm a member of the New York chapter, proud member too. So uh, there are over 2,600 members globally, yep. and they keep growing. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, we're, we're growing to, every day. Yeah, so yep. uh, wherever you are, uh, feel free to look up the Worldwide Supply Chain Federation, and um, yeah, you might just be um, become a member too. So yeah, and he blogs at um, Innovation Footprints and yep. writes a weekly column at Freight Waves. Yep. So welcome on the show, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. So before we get I, officially started, um, one I'm thing glad I forgot you could to ask make you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm glad you could make it. Oh, my God. We, we're, still, we're still on this. <laughs> oh, I guess we, we are not going to get to the end of this. Oh, my goodness. Uh, it would be out of character for, for me to let you get away with it. Let's okay. just. Well, I, I, bl I blame Uber for this. All right, that was the longest three minutes ever. If I had walked, I would have made it here on time. You know, it was Uber's fault. It was Uber. It said three minutes, and I ended up waiting for thirty minutes. I even tried to cancel. It wouldn't let me cancel. For wow. The, yeah, I guess wow. there was no Wi-Fi or something. Well, it's too. It's too bad we we can't ask the. Uh, the Uber driver to confirm. Oh, he apologized this, if, if like 20,000 20, times. He apologized so much that I guess that's why he agreed to become a to, guest to on the show. On, to come. Yeah, so he's going to be a guest on the show later down the line. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, one thing I forgot to ask before we began recording was um, how, do, how do I pronounce your uh, middle and last name? Because I, I never... Oh, this is fantastic. Yeah. How would you pronounce it? Uh, Long... That's actually that's actually pretty good. And the last name is uh, the tr tricky one now. Uh, let me see. Aue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's about as good as as you're going to get. Okay. That's about as good as you're so going long, to get. Long, long, long Aue. Yep. Because I interviewed a guest recently. He he was born in Uganda, mm -hmm. and he was claiming that you were Ugandan. I was like, uh, no, you know, you're not. No, I am not Ugandan, but my mom's uh, ethnic group yes. uh, is originally from around Uganda. Oh. In fact, her, um, her maiden name is Kampala, which is oh, the wow. same as the, uh, the capital of, of, yeah. of Uganda. Yeah, so, so according, to, according to oral tradition, um, her ethnic group migrated from what is now what we now know as as Uganda moved and, and migrated up to to Burkina Faso. Oh, so my mom's family is originally from Burkina Faso. My dad's family is is originally from northwestern Ghana. <clears throat> oh wow! Yep, that's uh, quite interesting. Long long means uh, 
something that brings people to, together. And oh. awoy means, uh, the easiest way to think of awoy is um, uh, things that are getting better. Mm. Just so, something that brings people together, together. Yeah. and things are getting better. Yep. Yep. Awoy should not have been my last name. <clears throat> my last name should have been Kumwabong. Because Awoy is my dad's, was originally my dad's middle name. Oh. And his last name is should have been Kumwabong. But then he got to school, and when he went to school, it was, it was operated by, <clears throat> by Roman Catholic uh, missionaries. And he did some quick thinking and realized that if Kumwabong was his uh, listed last name, he would on when they did the roll call. Yes, he would be somewhere down, <laughs> down with with all the other K's. And so, so when they asked him his last name, he flipped it oh. and said, "Kumwabong is his middle name, and and Awoy is his is his is his last name." So that's how it became my last name. So if you meet someone whose last name is Kumwabong, that's my relative. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. And Kumwabong means what is death? What is death? Yes. Wow. Hmm. So how do you answer that? <laughs> I've I've been I've been I've been trying to figure that out since I since I um since I gained gained an understanding of the name. I think the way you answer it is just by being courageous. I think that's the way that you that's the way that you you answer it. And, and and when I think and when I think about it, my grandfather really lived. He lived the meaning of his name because he um when he was <clears throat> a young man, he like many of the young men in the village at the time, he tried to leave home to go down to southern Ghana to work in the gold mines. Yes. But then while he was traveling, his parents, he got news that his parents had died. Mm. And so he came back home because his older brother had been, um, had left to join the army to fight in the, in the Second World War mm -hmm. in Burma. And then he fell sick. <clears throat> he fell sick and got so sick that he developed a hunchback. Mm. So he, he, he got disabled. Yeah. But in spite of his illness... He took care of his younger siblings. He put uh, one of his younger siblings through school, and <clears throat> that brother became an archbishop, oh, ultimately wow. became an archbishop in the Catholic Church. And he was an amazing farmer. He always, he always had the best harvest. He always had the best harvest in the village, wow. in spite of being, in spite of yeah. being, you know, dis having a uh, yeah, yeah, having a disability. Yeah. Um, he always had a word of encouragement for people. He always had words of advice for people. Um, he was very strict. I think the best thing that happened to me when I was a teenager was the fact that my parents decided to send me back home mm -hmm. to live with him. And he was a peasant farmer, so it's not like he had, by our standards, it's, it's not like he had a lot of money. But, um, you know, he taught me not to make excuses. He taught me the value of hard work. Um, you know, he taught me about, he taught me about my history. The, the, the reason I went home is because we visited uh, from Kano. We went home in 19... 
we we went home when I was eleven years old, yeah. and um, it was the first time that I could that that I could remember meeting my relatives. And when we were leaving, he said, "You know, this is bullshit." Sorry, can I? No, you, can you I? can. <laughs> <laughs> this is bullshit. Brian is the first. Uh, Long is the is the oldest in his generation, and he's the he's the first son of the first son, and he doesn't know his culture. He can't speak his language. Oh wow! He needs to come. <laughs> he needs to come back home mm. and learn about his culture and the language and go to school here. So that's. Mm. That's how. That's what led. So to that me. was the beginning of you. That was the beginning. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, 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 so that was. So I was in primary five at that time. Then once I finished primary six, they sent me home to um to go to secondary school. Okay, that that's a good segue into the next question. So um you left uh, um Ghana for uh, for primary school yeah. and um um which you had already done nursery school in. Tamale. In Tamale. Yep. And um, yep. Yep. so by the time you arrived in um, Nigeria, how did that have an effect on your childhood? Was there, do you have any memories of being treated differently? Or? So the, the thing I can remember is that, and, and, and I tell people now, is that I've always been, I've always been an outsider. So my family does not come from Tamale. <clears throat> mm. uh, my family comes from the Upper West region, Tamale is in the Northern region. The languages and culture, similar, very similar, but different enough that um, that people know you, uh, you are not the same. So growing up in Tamale, I was an outsider because, you know, my family is not Dagomba uh, and we didn't speak uh, Dagbani. Um, then when we went to Kano, uh, Again, you're an outsider because mm-hmm. you're not Nigerian, you don't speak Hausa, you're not Muslim. Yes. Um, and then even when I went back home to uh, to Namvali and to secondary school in Wa, so so Namvali is, is is our village. Yes. Um, you know, I didn't know my relatives. I didn't speak the language. Uh, I came from a different place. Kano is very very different from mm-hmm. Wa and very different from Namvali. So even then. In going back home, I was still an outsider. And then, you know, then after secondary school in Y, did my my A levels in Accra, and there again I was an outsider. And then then I came here. So the the, the one the one consistent thing um, is that I've always been I've always been an outsider. So, with you being an outsider, when it comes to your fondest childhood memories, are they in Ghana or in Nigeria? You know, I was just discussing this with Josh while we were waiting for someone to, um, <laughs> like I told you, he told me his life history. Oh, I told him my life story. <laughs> you know, we were just chilling. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, but, you know, so when I think of fond memories, I think of places that I consider home and... It would be difficult to say. So maybe the fact that my grandfather is in Ghana, I would say that that gives that gives Ghana a slight edge, maybe just a little bit. 
but when I think of home, I, I think it's both Ghana, Ghana and, 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 and and Nigeria. And and I think I think I was lucky in the sense that I got the best of I got the best of both worlds. So I think I have the you know, Ghanaians like to say they're the world's uh, friendliest people. So I think I have the friendliness of a Ghanaian with the arrogance, and I'm not going to take your bullshit that comes with being <laughs> that comes with being Nigerian. I think I, I, I think I have I think I have that uh. in just the right in just the right proportion. You know, so so a lot of people uh, meet me and they're like, "Oh my God, he is so friendly," and I'm like, "Yeah, I'm friendly, but." Um, I can also I can also flip a switch. When it's time to call it spade is spade, I can be I can be very, very blunt. Oh, man. And you know what I mean. I mean Yes, I yeah. do. Yep. Well my yep. mom my mom grew up in Ghana, so I, I, I can I can testify you know. We have we have that already in the family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, where, where in Ghana? Um I know somewhere close to Kumasi, that's where the family was and um okay and now they're all scattered everywhere yeah after my grandfather yeah, yeah. passed away yeah my my, my mom my mom uh, like i told you her family is originally from uh burkina faso in terms of like near uh, a more recent history but then her dad was a policeman and um moved down from uh paga which is in the upper east they moved him down to a call a town called uh, Konongo, which is not too far away from from Kumasi. I have not to ask my mom for the exact town. town. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, she, yeah. yeah she, she, whenever she chooses to, you get the whole information. Yeah, she does. Yeah. Kumasi is just the headline. That yeah, that's Kumasi is the yeah, biggest. It was it's my grandfather that you know he, when he was alive yeah. in the police force. And, yeah, 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 and. and Starting the whole Nigerian Ghanaian family over there. <laughs> then he passed away, and then they started dividing. Some stayed in Ghana, and then some. Some came back. back to Nigeria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. All right. So, um, what uh, would you say um, um, was the f- um, what memory from your childhood like the fondest, like something that happened that you, like a funny story that you have it, 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 that happened in Ghana or Nigeria that you you can share. One that one that I remember, um, and that makes me chuckle sometimes. My mom tells me I used to be very particular about my shoes being clean mm-hmm. when I was a little kid, <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, she dressed me up and put me in my shoes and and, and put my shoes on. And I'd have a handkerchief, and I'd I'd walk, I'd take a few steps, and I'd stop and clean my I'd stop and clean my. That, that's stop, a lot of cleaning if you were in Canada. <laughs> I'd stop and clean my shoes. Um, then another funny story. She says I was very easy to uh, to take care of because all she had to do was sit me down in front of a record player. Oh, music. And especially if she put on James Brown. Mm. I'd just sit there 
and listen and listen and listen and she could go and do other things <laughs> she, could, she could go and do other things knowing that i just sit i just be sitting there listening to so you had the funk listening to the uh you listening were down to, with the funk to music and then um another funny story uh at some point my dad left us left me at me and my mom in Ghana and spent I think he spent he must have spent a year or something in the UK mm -hmm. doing postgraduate studies and so my mom came from work she was a school teacher uh, in Tamale and so she came from work one afternoon and I was sitting I was sitting out in front on the on the stoop and I was very annoyed and she said Brian what's wrong and I said, there's a strange man in the house and he's lying on your bed. And I've told him, <laughs> I've told him he shouldn't lie on your bed. <laughs> and he wouldn't listen. He wouldn't listen to me. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> and so she's like, who is this strange person? <laughs> so she's like, Brian, this is your those, those are the um, oh man those are some of the funny stories uh, uh, <laughs> then one from uh. one from my teenage years um one with my grandpa there was one year i can't remember which year it was i think maybe it was form maybe form four so in secondary school what would happen is that i would spend the Christmas vacation and the Easter vacation with my grandfather in the village. And usually during summer, du du during a long vac between, um, between June and September, I tried to visit my parents in Kano. It usually didn't work out as well. So I think it was only in form four that I, I actually spent the full three months in Kano, um, and then after Form 5, Form prepped through Form, uh, so prep is like, let me see, prep is what's, like, what's the equivalent of uh, Form 4? Form, 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 form 1 is like 7th grade, Okay. and and in Xavier, in WA, they had us do a prep, a prep year, so prep would have been like 7th grade. Um, so prep through Form 4. Uh, so let me see, Form 4 is what, 10th grade. Um, uh, I'd usually spend most of the summer vacation in the village as well. Anyway, so doing one, uh, 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 during one Christmas or one Easter vacation, and, and when I stayed with my grandfather, I helped him on the farm. Yeah. And uh, if it wasn't farming season, then I'd heard, I'd heard uh, cattle. So... One day, I got a little rebellious and decided I wasn't going to go to the farm with him. <laughs> I wasn't going to go to the farm with him. Meanwhile, once I was ready to go back to school, he'd usually send me back with, you know, some groundnuts yep. and some other stuff uh, uh, for school. And he'd give me, a, he'd sell some, some, some farm uh, produce and give me some money. So when... I told him I was ready to go back to school. He said, well, you know, the other day you wouldn't come with me to the farm, so I don't have anything 
I don't have anything. Unfortunately, I don't have anything to give you. Now, this will be difficult for people to, to understand, but in the village, um, the the mode of transportation to get back to why the town in which my school was was a was a truck a mm-hmm. a, a, uh, a market a market truck um, and the market truck came I was bigger than a five ton truck yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it would come maybe out of the seven days a week it would come maybe on uh six of those days Mm -hmm. and there was one day that it wouldn't come so it turns out that the day school was going to reopen was a day the truck would not come to the village (laughs) so since since my grandfather said he didn't have anything to give us my cousin and i mark and i had to load our things on a bike ride 12 miles to a, a to another village called uh, Kalio which was on the highway so our, so so our village is off yeah. is off the highway so, so we yeah. rode to 12 to miles highway. to Kalio we dumped our things there rode 12 miles back to take the bikes back home right because the people in the village needed they, they needed their bikes <laughs> and then the following morning we woke up early and said we were going to walk to Kalio to catch a truck in Kalio and then go to school so as we were getting ready to go my grandfather called me and said oh I have I have this for you I just wanted to teach you a lesson that the way <laughs> the, that that farm work farm work is how I'm able to support you when you're going to school and yeah. you know your refusal to come to the farm the other day was really upsetting and whatnot. Still had to walk twelve <laughs> we still had to walk <laughs> we still had to walk twelve miles. But but it taught me yeah. it taught me it taught me a, a lesson. You know, I, I, I think I was more responsible than most te- uh, teenagers, but it just taught me that you, you you know while to me it didn't seem like it was a big deal it obviously to him was a big deal oh. um so those are some of the um <laughs> you know then when i got home i i didn't speak the language and i had to i had to figure out how to and and they my, my grandfather did not speak english i had so to figure out a the, way to the communicating must have been fun then it was the interesting thing is that in school we had to we took dagari that's our language it was compulsory yeah uh, for the first four years of school it was compulsory and so people have asked me how um how this happened but i think and very quickly i was topping the class in the in, in dagari i mean i was kicking everyone's butt in the other s- uh, subjects but the most surprising thing was that i was stopping the class in dagari because every single one of my classmates could speak dagari but somehow when it came to classwork <laughs> i was <laughs> i remember one day mr Barrow, our class teacher was like you people should feel ashamed <laughs> brian can't even speak <laughs> he can't even speak dagari and somehow he's topping he's topping, topping the, the class, class. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it it was i just figured out how to study uh get ready for the tests do the tests and you know it it worked but it also helped it also helped me learn more quickly Mm. uh, to be able to communicate with my grandfather at home so 
So was it from the time you spent with your grandfather that you started developing cooking skills? No, my my mom taught me to my mom taught me uh the very first time she taught me how to make rice. I think I was in first grade. Okay. And she just decided that I needed to be able to help her in the kitchen. So <laughs> the first thing the first thing she taught me how to do was to make rice. Uh, yeah, and, that was easy then. And I um I I I I I have a, I have a very good uh, relationship with with my mom, and so we'd spend a lot of time in the kitchen, uh, and so I picked up I picked up a lot of that. Then there was a period when she, my mom quit teaching when she when I was in first grade, and starting then she started trying to build uh, businesses from home. So initially she was baking meat pies. Mm, that's my favorite. And so my my responsibility in that endeavor was when I got home from school, um, I'd have lunch and then I'd peel potatoes and I'd dice them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes as many as 300 potatoes. I'd peel them, I'd dice them. Uh, we'd boil them uh, to use as an ingredient in the in the process of baking the pies the next day. And only after I did that would I then do my homework. Mm. So um, that that meant I spent a lot of time around the kitchen. Yeah. yeah. Remember the day uh, Verena made, uh, tried to make uh, meat pie at home? She was like, whoa, that, that's a lot it's, of work. It's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of it's, work. It's, it's a lot of I mean, work. I was happy, though, because I'm, I'm, I'm down for the eating. I'm not down for the making of meat pie. No. I don't think she ever tried making meat pie again. There, there's a place, in, if you guys, if you ever drive through Stamford, uh, Connecticut, there's a place called Matthew's Bakery, mm-hmm. and they have uh, they have beef empanadas. Mm. It is identical to my mom's meat, uh, meat pies. The oh. one, the one difference is that in theirs they have uh, half a boiled egg and they have olives. Oh, my mom, my my mom's recipe did not have a half a boiled half egg, a boiled and, egg and, and olives and, and and olives. But everything else, everything else is identical. When she visited in two thousand and seven we lived across the street from matthews and so i said i have to go and get you some meat pies from matthews <laughs> <laughs> and you have to tell me wh- what you think and when she tasted it she was like this is just like my meat i said yeah that's why that's why i told you i have to get you some meat pies yeah. from matthews so yeah, yeah that's there's yeah. one uh, nigerian lady who um does caribbean food on a food truck on fifth avenue yeah and yeah, her meat pie is actually good. She actually has fish pie, uh, shrimp pie, pie, yeah, and a whole bunch of others. And yeah, she's uh, I think she's the best that I've had in in New York. In New York, yeah. yeah. My my mom's meat pies. So she would bake them, and then uh, they would they distribute them to the kiosks on the BUK campus. And they'd have them in time for lunch when the students got out of class for lunch. Oh wow! They were to this day. I'll meet people, um, and you know, two decades, three decades later, the first question they'll ask me is, "Is your mom still making those meat pies?" <laughs> I want those meat. Uh, uh, 
I've not seen you for three decades. You wouldn't even say, Brian, how are you doing? The first thing out of your mouth is the first thing out of your mouth is 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 Auntie Bernie still making is Auntie Bernie still making those meat pies? I want some meat pies. Oh. <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm 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 kind of, I'm guilty of that too. I, I had a friend whose mom used to make meat pies and amongst other snacks in my neighborhood in Benin City and yeah yeah I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah, every time I chat with her too, I'm like that. Like, hey girl, I'm, uh, when when you hook me up, your mom's meat pie. She's like, aren't you in America living life? Shouldn't you be eating all that stuff? I'm like, I've been thinking about your mom's meat pie all these years. So. Oh lord. Uh, so before we leave um, Ghana and come over to the United States, uh, one last question. Um, what experience from your childhood could be as a teenager um, do you think played a role or sowed the seeds in where you are today um, career-wise? Um, yeah, I, I, I think I'll, I'll go back to, to experiencing life in, in, in secondary school. So two aspects of secondary school. One is living with my grandfather, which mm-hmm. I've already talked about a little bit. And then the secondary school I went to, St. Francis Xavier Junior Seminary in Wa. Um, it's a Catholic uh, boys' school. And most of the kids, I think even today, but back when I was... Um, a student there. A lot of the kids I went to school with were the first in their family to go to school mm. up to that point. Yeah. Many of them, you know, so I was fortunate in the sense that my grandfather was a peasant farmer, but my dad had gone to school, my mom had gone to school, my dad had gone to university, was teaching and whatnot. But many of my classmates, you know, their parents were peasant f- uh, farmers, so their parents were like my grandfather. Yes. Right? They they were coming from villages like mine, where there's no running water, there's no electricity, and so on and so forth. The majority of my classmates were in uh, fit that category, and man, these guys were hardworking. They did not make excuses. It kick your butt if you let your guard down. Mm-hmm. They were very ambitious. I mean, the St. Francis Xavier routinely is among, puts up the best results of any secondary school in West Africa um, every year without, without fail. And it's not like the school has a lot of resources. I mean, when I was taking my GCE O-level o- exams, um, for the three years that I was studying the YX syllabus for geography, we did not have a geography teacher. I had to teach myself. Yeah, I signed up to take a, ge- a geography in the O-level exam, but, but I did it knowing that we probably would not have a teacher just because the government of Ghana um, prioritized government schools over, over private schools. Uh, which is what our school so was. Yours was a private school. It was, okay. yeah. It, it, because it was, it's a Catholic school. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, it's a Catholic school. In, in Nigeria, I think we got the advanced stage. I think the government claimed 
some of the schools from the Catholic Church and um, all the churches, they took the schools from them. And made them public. And made them public. Yeah. Z- Xavier has resisted. Xavier okay. has resisted. So they So St. Charles... So St. Charles, which is St. Charles, which is where my dad went to secondary school, that's in Tamale. They became, uh, they took government support mm-hmm. in, in Notre Dame in the Upper East in Navarango. They took uh, government support. St. Francis in Jarapa, which is a girls, a Catholic girls' yeah. school. But what usually happens when a school like that takes government support is that, and I don't know why this happens, but the academic standards start to slip. It, it drops. Well, uh, I, I can give the example in Nigeria is that uh, well, the education was never really a priority. Right. So, and especially under the military rule, the, the education just died. Yeah. It completely, yeah. Because Nigeria had a high standard, uh, especially yes. when Ghanaians were teachers yes. in Nigeria yes. at one yes. point in time. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, when the, the, like, I attended private schools and then it switched me later to public schools yeah. uh, when things became you know, very imbalanced like before yeah. and yeah. Um, the school I attended back in the days would have belonged to uh, maybe the Anglican church, church or yeah. something yeah, yeah. and the Anglican um, or the Methodist uh, Methodist yeah, yeah, yeah Mount Olivet Grammar yeah. School yeah. and yeah like uh, my final year of school I think uh, there was no arts teacher there was no even um, I actually coached the, the soccer team Wow. Yeah, it was after I qualified them for uh, the state regional tournament. And yeah. uh, some guy came out from nowhere and said, nah, he's going to coach. <laughs> coach them. And, um, okay. And then uh, he put some mercenaries on the team. And, and that led to new fights from nowhere. So I was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm like, get my hand off now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like a whole bunch of teachers were not ex- in existence. No history teacher, no. Um, there were a whole bunch of teachers that are missing, so yeah, so, yeah the, the standard just dropped, dropped, yeah. and yeah, and then you're expecting those students to get into university, became a whole the so except the ones who could afford private tutors, yeah. The the thing worse. that the thing that Xavier has, which most other schools don't have to the same degree, is an emphasis on discipline. The emphasis on discipline is. Um, extreme. So it's discipline in terms of expectations, right? Mm-hmm. With the, the, the administration expects us to always be amongst the best. Like whatever you're doing, wherever it is, the expectation is that you'll be among the best. And so class after class of uh, graduating uh, students, the entire school is like rooting for you yeah. to make to make us proud, right? Mm-hmm. Um um, and so I think with that sort of discipline, you know, even when you don't have resources, you find, you find ways of, um, of making up for that lack of, re- of, of resources. And, and, and so it really, it really taught me, it was like, you know, you really have no excuse. Mm. Like you, you really just have, you have no excuse. If my grandfather, who has this crippling disability, can uh, can persevere through it and do what he's doing and support his family and be someone that everyone else in the village looks up to, and if these kids that are my classmates who have 
every reason to feel sorry for themselves and to like make excuses, etc., 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 if they're all doing so well. And, you know, the students ahead of me, if they're all like breaking records and doing phenomenally well, what what excuse do I have? Um, and and so I, I think that is the one that's one thing that has really stayed with me throughout. Um, and and then there, and then there are a few other things like I had to in, se- in secondary school. I had I, I went through a period when I had seizures and I had to learn how to manage them because, again, uh, my parents lived in Nigeria. I was in Ghana at the start of each school year. They'd basically give me my books, my yeah. my supplies and my school fees and some pocket m- money. And I had to figure things out for the whole year. Mm-hmm till I got back to see them again. It's, we weren't rich enough to have uh, telephones, so yes. I couldn't call them, and the the uh, the mail, the postal system did not work. Yeah, that's so, right. <laughs> so it's not like I could write them a letter and they'd even, get even, it. Even if you had access to Telegram, <laughs> Telegram was still faster. Was, uh, so, <laughs> um, so I had to figure out how to... <coughs> How to na- uh, navigate having seizures? Uh, when I started, when I started, uh, a- and this one especially will will um, will highlight the you don't have any excuses attitude. But when my mom dropped me off in Xavier uh, to start to start school, um, I was wetting my bed. Mm. I was I used to wet my bed, and you know she was very worried. She was like, "Oh my god." Now Brian is going to be in boarding school, and his classmates will laugh at him, yeah, that, and it will be, it, it, it will be traumatizing. Yeah. It will be traumatizing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, but they had decided I was going to go home and go to school, so that was that was it. So I get to I, I get to Xavier, and you you know, uh, one of this I think I just told my classmates I was like, look, guys, I wet my bed. Like, this is just something I need you guys to, to know. I wet my bed. Um, I'm going to make sure, I'm going to try to make sure that it doesn't become an issue. But you should just know that I wet my bed. Um, so right from the get-go, I'd wake up early. I'd dry my mattress. I'd wash my bed sheets because I didn't want it to be something that mm-hmm. my... We, we lived like 12 people to one dorm room. Yep. Um, so, so I didn't want the other people I was living with. And what happened is that the other 11 or so people in my dorm room were very sympathetic. They gave me all kinds of ideas to try to stop bed, bed wetting. There was, <laughs> there was one contraption where it was some sort of string, which I was supposed to use to tie something. And <laughs> it did it. <laughs> It didn't. It didn't. Uh, it didn't. It didn't work to our great disappointment. Uh, but then, you know, one day, I can't remember when it was. I was just like, you know what, Brian? This bullshit just has to stop. It just. It just has. It just has to stop. Um. So I decided to try an experiment. I said, okay, well. 
lights go off. We're supposed to go to sleep at 9 p.m. Lights go off, the, the generator is turned off, and we're all supposed to go to sleep. But, you know, you don't typically fall asleep at 9. Yes. You, you, you know, we'll be lying down and chit-chatting and whatnot. So again, school rules, but, yeah, we'll lie down and we'll be chit-chatting and whatnot. So I said, well, maybe instead of chit-chatting, let me try just lying down and, you know, while I'm waiting to fall asleep, let me just focus on, you know, trying not to wet my bed. Mm. Let me see. Let me see what happens because this bullshit just this this can't this can't con this can't continue. <laughs> and but but this was at the point where my grandfather has told me, you know, like the uh, so long as my great great grandfather. And he told me, you know, this is what Lang was like. This is what he did. Uh, 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 and this is the meaning of your name and all those things. So I, I think it was all those things plus seeing the people I was going to school with. And it just hit me. I was like, you, you don't have any excuse. Like, figure this out. So the first day I tried it, to my complete surprise, I woke up right after wetting my bed right after i was like damn it i was so close i was so close <coughs> so then that encouraged me to double down mm -hmm. to double down on that and and eventually i so then when i went home when i went back to my parents you know my mom was nervous she was like oh, so what's so? i was like oh i'm fine She's like what do you mean you're fine i don't wet my bed anymore I haven't. I don't remember the last time. I, <laughs> I don't remember the last time. I remember the last time I went to my bed. I'm wow. completely. Um, and I even forget why I was telling you that story. But I think the question was about how has that that experience you. affected yeah, where yeah. you are today. So so, so, so basically, the bottom line. Uh, the bottom line is. I just fundamentally have this attitude that there's there's no excuse. Mm. I used to wet my bed too. I think up to probably age fourteen. Yeah, um, which was a little bit weird because my first niece and my, I think my second niece, yeah, my first and second nieces were already born. Yeah, and um, they were staying with us. And sometimes I'll try to blame them. <laughs> so, hopefully, they don't listen. Well, they don't, I don't think they have. The, they can recall. They were too young. Hopefully, but, um, hopefully you didn't traumatize them yeah, too much. Nah, I, I was a nice uncle anyway. But uh, yeah, I don't even know how I stopped. But I know one of the the um, the tricks I was given in the books that like, oh, if you're sleeping and uh, you start dreaming. Of um the, the of you, tap of, the yeah. tap being open, open if there's yeah. a tap in your dream yeah. and the tap is open and water is pouring you you're paying you yeah, wake up wake up immediately yeah if there's a tap running or you see a water body you, is anybody playing with water don't that, I, yeah just jump up just and jump, up yeah, and, jump out of the bed yeah. I was like what yeah jump up don't even look at that don't think about it twice jump up. And the moment I was like, nah, and I wake up, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's true, that's true. And then I guess when I stopped, okay, I, don't, I don't even know how, but I just know one day it just stopped. It just stopped. It just stopped. Uh, another thing yeah. that, another thing that, um, uh, and now that I'm thinking about it, so I think I mentioned that I had a seizure. So yeah. 
my mom tells me when I was an infant, I had seizures, and then it stopped oh. until I got to sec- to secondary school. So I'm 12 years old. I'm in secondary school, and I start having uh, seizures. And like I said, it's not like my parents were nearby to help me work through. Were you diagnosed with anything? Well, I had an, uh, a friend of my dad's, uh, Mr. Jacob Duarina, was a pharmacist. So he... <coughs> He uh, he created a formulation for me, but it didn't. I, I don't think it really worked, and there was no one at the hospital in Wa who could who could do much. So I I had seizures until my freshman year in college, when wow. I finally saw a neurologist in New London, wow. and they put me on some medication that um, that uh, stopped it. But one of the things I also realized I had to do was that since I could have a seizure at any time, since I could have a seizure at any time, I needed to find a way. And since I could never tell who would be around me Mm -hmm. when I was having a seizure, I needed to somehow be the kind of person that strangers want to help. And it was especially critical uh, at that time because in much of northern Ghana, and I think in much of West Africa, there are a lot of superstitions around people who have epilepsy. True. That's very true. Even my even some of my close uh, relatives you know uh, 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 believed in some of these superstitions and thought oh my god he's possessed with mm-hmm. something and so it's very easy if you're having a seizure for people to run away in fear as opposed to trying to help you and so somehow i had to figure out how to be how to become the type of person that if i was having a seizure under any circumstances the people nearby, the f- their first reaction should be, let's help mm-hmm. this guy, as opposed to, you know, <laughs> let's, let's run for our lives. That, that's very important because there's a whole lot of, um, look, I've been doing a whole lot of looking back uh, lately because there's a whole lot of information that I've been getting nowadays and then i look back i'm like wow you know um the other day i was on a friend's podcast and we were talking about mental health and she was asking me about uh mental health issues in nigeria and i was like yeah you know when we're kids it used to be like uh this but oh this person is crazy that person right. is mad this yeah. person is mad but i was like you know a whole bunch of those people were not really mad per se it's just like People just gave up on them. Yeah, people, people didn't just, really know yeah, what people, was wrong. Yeah, people did was, not know what was they wrong. They didn't have the yeah. right tools, uh, tools yeah. to treat them, yeah. so they just yeah. dumped them on the streets. Yeah, and I yeah. remember clearly as a teenager when um, there was this guy. I don't know how he was quite the. He was the guy who just liked to do things that people always said he he was one of these weird guys. Yeah, and. He he always held conversations with one of the so-called mad people in the neighborhood. Yeah. And he would just go up to the guy like, "Hey man, I got granuts and uh, um, bananas. Here you yeah, go. Here you go. Um, how how you doing?" And then they would have a conversation. A conversation. And yeah. they would just be chatting like yeah. normal people. Yeah. And yeah, I'm like, what the hell wrong with well, you? Yeah, what's wh- why, why what's you talking going to, on? Why are you talking to that guy? He yeah. lives in the bushes. Yeah, he he's like so. Yeah, have you talked to him? Like you talk, but this was like way way. Yeah. way. He, it was like someone came from 
the future and yeah. was talking yeah. to us and we were like what yeah. what the hell yeah nah nah we, we, we couldn't relate to what he was saying but now looking back i'm like you know that dude was right but the whole neighborhood even parents were like don't yeah, don't, 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 don't talk to don't, that boy that yeah. boy is weird <laughs> the the yeah. the in 86 my mom uh st- started a school and ultimate so she uh, when she started she started with three kids in the garage and then it grew um she she, she still runs a, she still runs a school now and in hindsight when I think about some of the kids she had as pupils, I realized that some of them were autistic, mm. and we didn't we didn't we didn't know it at yeah. the time. Um, um, fortunately, uh, and maybe this is why their parents put them in my mom's school. The way she organized the school was such that each child got individualized attention. Mm. Uh, as it was growing, because for at, at the time it was a small enough group that the te- that she could um, uh, she, uh, she could organize it that uh, that way. So even the autistic kids got their own they got their own uh, 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 individualized instruction instruction design. And I think that that's probably what helped, at least the ones that came through her school, I think that helped them a lot. But yeah, the, the people just didn't have the tools or people just didn't have the tools or the knowledge um, to deal with some of those things. And, and so, yeah, so that that's, that's one of the things that, um, you know, just having to manage, just having to manage that uh, is something that, and maybe this is, a story I'm telling myself in <laughs> with the benefits of hindsight. <laughs> I don't know, uh, but just having to manage that and not to allow, not to allow the fact that some of the people I was interacting with thought not not to allow what they thought about my epilepsy and my seizures get to me. Is, yeah, I think that's that's another thing. All right. I think we've spent a lot on on that topic. Yep. Uh, let's cross the ocean now and officially come to the United States. Yep. Um, so what was your first culture shock on upon arrival in the United States? Oh, that's easy. I woke up one morning and looked through my dorm window and there was snow outside. Oh, so you, you're going with snow. And <laughs> I was... I mean, I knew... Intellectually, I I knew to expect it. I just didn't expect that's what it would look like in real so life. So, what 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 was the reaction? Was it like it looked beautiful, or did you feel like oh, you want to go outside and? No, I didn't it? want to go outside because it was also extremely cold. Okay. And up to this day, when it snows, I just want to stay inside and close the window. Close the windows. I mean, not... <laughs> for me, I mean, I was I was at uh, I was in Virginia. Yeah. Uh, Northern Virginia, and uh, I remember the first time it snowed at my mom's place. I slept at my mom's place, and I looked out the window. I was like, "Oh, it looks beautiful outside." I think it was like the fifth floor of maybe like what, like a ten-story building, building or eight-story yeah. building. So it was quite a good height. I could see all around, yeah. and I thought it was so beautiful. I saw um, a deer walking around, and uh, but it was quite sunny, mm-hmm. and it was so sunny that it didn't feel cold yeah. from yeah. up that height. Yeah. 
So I was like, oh, this don't feel cool. But I could go outside and like in a t-shirt. <laughs> kind of My mom was like, will you put on some jacket before <laughs> you jacket before go outside? You go outside. I don't have the, you don't have health insurance. You uh, want to go out there and get sick. And I was Lord. like, oh, health insurance? What's all this talk <laughs> What's about? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so um, um, what was college years like for you? And uh, how was uh, Connecticut different to NYC? College was fantastic. Uh, I can't, I can't even describe how fantastic it was. So sometimes people ask me why Connecticut College, and that one is simple. Um, when I was when I finished secondary school in Ghana after my A levels, uh, I didn't want to go to school in Ghana or Nigeria because, um, and I think it's so. <coughs> Excuse I think me. it still happens now, mm-hmm. uh, but the universities get shut uh, shut down quite frequently for strikes. Yeah, for yeah. strikes and whatnot. The year before, except if you go to a private university, right? Except if you're going to the year before, I would have started. But there were uh, none. Probably the, the, by the time. The, yeah, there were none back then, um, and uh, the year before, I'd have gone to university. Uh, the three universities in Ghana were shut down for nine months. Oh yeah, and and it wasn't very different in Nigeria. So I was like, yeah, this doesn't make sense. So then I also noticed that some of my classmates from Presec were um, coming to school in the United States. And when I talked to a few people, they said, oh yeah, so and so. So some of them were citizens of the U.S. Right, their parents came here for grad school. They were born here, so they were citizens of the U.S. And that was a different story. But then there were others who were getting uh, financial aid to come to school. And I was like, well, if that person can get financial aid, I think I should be able to, <laughs> I think I should be able to get financial aid, especially since I think I'm more intelligent. <laughs> especially since I think I'm more intelligent uh. than they are. I think I should be able to get some financial aid too. So I applied to nine, I applied to nine colleges. Uh, I took the SATs and the TOEFL and applied to nine colleges and Connecticut College gave me a, a, a full scholarship. Oh, wow. Um, I tell people that my financial aid from Connecticut College was so generous that the year after I graduated, I got a check for two hundred dollars from the financial aid office because they had they had paid too much tax on my <laughs> they had paid too much tax. I mean, like, so when I tell when I tell people that Connecticut College changed my life, it's not. It's not. I'm not. I'm not kidding. It, it was, you know, it's a small liberal arts school. Yes. Um, uh, you, you know, I think maybe somewhere sixteen hundred to maybe two thousand students at any one time, with a chunk uh, st- studying abroad at at any one time of the year. Um, a lot of focus on quality teaching. So. We got a, a lot of attention from our teachers, Good. which um, which reminded me of being in Xavier uh, more than Presec. Presec was big. Um, I didn't enjoy my time at Presec as much. Uh, it was a great school, uh, but I didn't have the intimacy with one's teachers was mm-hmm. not there. I mean, in some of my classes at, um, I think in quantum physics, there were like five of us. Five students. Oh wow! In uh, in uh, in differential geometry, there, there were three of us. 
Hmm. So it, it's the sort of situation in which you really can't hide. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can't. You really can't hide. I worked for the. I worked for the chair of the physics department. I I worked for the math department. Um, I DJed. So that's um, where the DJing began. That that's where the DJing began. So I, I had a great time at Curitiba. It, it's a sort of place where you could decide what experience you wanted to have. Okay. And you could get very involved. Uh, some people hated it. Uh, I have, oh, I, ha- I, ha- I have a classmate who, after freshman year, she she left and uh, went somewhere else. It was just too small. But for me, it was it was perfect. It was perfect. Yep. So f- from there, why did you decide um, New York? So when I was when I was finishing college, um, a lot of the friends I made in college when they graduated. Uh, a number of them came to New York or they went to work in Boston. And I was asking myself, do I want to go? So so obviously, like everyone else, I interviewed uh, for a bunch of different things. And I asked myself, do I want to start out in the big city? Some people, you know, wouldn't take jobs in smaller towns because they wanted to be in the big city. Mm-hmm. I, I thought to myself, if my first job is in the big city, that's fine. I'll take it. But if my first job is in a different place, that's fine too. Because then what I can do is I can make a name for myself in the smaller place that eventually helps me land on my feet in the bigger place. So uh, my first job was in Stamford, Connecticut. Okay. Which was, again, it was perfect because um, I worked for an actuary and they expected us to study for actuarial exams, um, which I thought was perfect, was was fantastic. And the town was small enough. Um, it's a small enough town that it wasn't overwhelming. So. So from then, you, you and Stanford is also within the New York uh it is, except when I was, uh, <coughs> I can't remember coming into the city much then. I can't remember coming into the city. There just wasn't very much that. There wasn't much going there, there on? Was the, there was, uh, so, so one time I oh, came. Did you, did you stop DJing right after college? Or? Yeah, so DJing was something that was completely opportunistic. Oh. Right, so. So how did you begin? So, um. Freshman year, I didn't work at all. Okay. I didn't, uh, everyone else, you, you know, my friends, they worked in dining services, campus safety, library services, you know, and whatnot. And I asked, you know, so how much do you make working dining services? Five fifty an hour, five seventy five an hour. The best, the best jobs were working for the chair of the physics department and he was paying like maybe 675 sometimes 725 an hour mm-hmm. so uh, you know freshman year i'm just going to focus on studying i came here to go to school i'm going to focus on studying then in in my dormitory there was a f- uh, i made friends with craig dershowitz uh he's the nephew of, of alan dershowitz the uh, famous lawyer at harvard so Craig Dershowitz is my friend and Craig is a DJ. He DJs on the radio and he DJs parties. So I was like, hey Craig, how much do you make DJing? Eh, four hours of work, 
I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> this is the Nigerian. So this is the Nigerian in me. I was like, wait, 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 wait. What? Four hours of work, $200. That's like, that's the minimum. He said, yeah, of $200, $50 an hour. That's like the minimum, sometimes more. I was like, great. I think I know what I think. I, I think I know what I'm going to be doing. <laughs> so... Um, there wasn't anyone to train me. Right? Craig was not going to, to train me. He'd let me hang out with him once in a while, but he wasn't really going to, to train me. So the way to get trained was to go to the radio station mm -hmm. and to get trained as a radio DJ. So I walked into the radio station one day and said, hey, I'd like... And the summer of my freshman... That's the university's radio yeah, the, station. Yeah, the, okay. uh, Connecticut College had a radio station. Yeah. So I walked in over the summer of my freshman year. I got trained. Um, I love reggae, and even then I loved uh, reggae. So I said, I'll do a reggae show. Um, there was a longtime reggae DJ on the station called Brother John. He was the station's reggae director. He was kind enough to let me be a guest on his show, I think for maybe three or four times. He did a weekly show. After the fourth time, he decided he was going to leave the... Um, to leave the reggae directorship in my hands and retire. Oh. So I took over being the reggae uh, director and did a weekly uh, reggae show. By the time school re uh, reopened, I, find, I felt confident enough to go and register as a campus DJ. <laughs> and since I was on campus, I was, I was the only one on campus during orientation week. Yeah. They said, oh, you, you know what? Do you just want to do all the orientation week parties? Oh, wow. I said, yes. If you're looking for a DJ for all the orientation <laughs> week parties, I'll do all the orientation week parties. Now, the great thing about doing all the orientation week parties is that all the house fellows, all the residents, assistants have to be there. All the house go uh, governors who arrange entertainment for the different dorms yeah. ha have to be there. And obviously all the freshmen, all the freshmen are there. Mm. I had an entire week to get them to fall in love with my style of DJing, <laughs> my selection. So by the time the they other DJs, by the time the other DJs came back to campus, yeah. I was like, I was legitimate competition. Wow. And then, you know, my attitude was, I'm, I'm going to put these other guys out of business. <laughs> I mean, I'm, yeah, I, I, it's, it's competitive. I was like, so yeah. You, you could have gone pro then. I could have, except because I didn't want to jeopardize my academics. Yeah. I wasn't spending as much time as some other people. Still, still I put I put most of them out of business. So for example, there was a there was a guy, like he's Justin was a legit DJ. He had, you know, turntables, he DJed at clubs off campus, he DJed at other colleges and whatnot somehow he his business on campus started going down. They kicked him off his show on the radio station and gave it to me. <laughs> Are you guys still friends? We were never friends then, oh. and we're not okay. friends now. My goal, my goal was to put all of them oh. out of business. <laughs> oh, man. I would love to continue oh, the, on the Lord. DJing, but uh, we're pressed for time, so we have to move on. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, 
let me just ask one more musical question your musical influences are they more from ghana or nigeria on back on on the continent both 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 so both which are your, like, your favorites um, i like afrobeat uh juju you know <laughs> you're going to get me in trouble yeah, i'm trying have you have you ever you got me in trouble already have you ever seen a Yoruba woman shaking Ikebe to uh, to Juju music. Uh, if I say no, <laughs> would you believe me? <laughs> how can you? How can you not love? How can you not love Juju music? Uh, yeah, so I, I I love Juju music. I used to listen to um, to to Fela as a kid. So I love Afro beats. Um, uh, who are these? Chris Okoti uh christy Essien. oh uh, that lady can uh, sing uh, she she you know so it, it's if it's if it's african music uh, i i i have i love it uh my dad my dad listens to he listens to all kinds of music classical music the whole nine yards so no, I'm, I'm, the, I'm down with all, all so on on radio i did a reggae show at the campus parties my leg up on the other DJs was that. So the other DJs, and I did this, I'd go and hang out at their parties. After one or two parties, you could predict their playlist. Mm. You know, oh, he just played he just played this song. He's now going to play uh, Beat It by Michael Jackson. And I was like, that's not very interesting. Why don't you give something to look forward to? Why don't you give people like, oh, if I go to Brian's party, I know I'm going to hear music from every part of the world, right? Because the student body represents different. Yeah. So yeah, is hip hop going, to, is there going to be a lot of hip hop and R&B and reggae and whatnot? But then you also want the people from Europe to feel like this is a party for them too. You, you want the... You want the um, the Hispanic and Latino kids to feel like this is also their party. And I remember the, there was one time the um, Hispanic Cultural Club on campus, they hired me to do a party and they said, you're the only DJ who plays any Latin music. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so there'd be soca, there'd be African music, there'd be world music, and then there'd be all the usual stuff that Which everyone is good. Has. That everyone else just good so. you get to enjoy music from everywhere i mean so, so 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 this was the other trick that i played which i don't know if people so on college campuses when there's a party usually the women arrive early they arrive you know the parties from 10 p.m to 2 to 2 a.m mm -hmm. 10 10 15 10 30 the women are there right a group of women a group of young women with their friends, you know, they, they want to hang out and have a good time and not deal with all the other distractions. The guys tend to show up around 11-ish. So my thinking was, I need to keep these women here. I need to keep them, I need to keep them here. I need to play the kind of music they want to listen to with their friends. Not the bump and grind stuff. Right? The kind <laughs> that they just want to listen to, have a good time and whatnot. So I also had a very significant uh, collection of uh, disco. Yes. Right? Like Dancing Queen and whatnot. So from 10 to 10.30 or 10 to 10.45, that's what I'd play. And they would all stick around. Wow. So when the guys started to show up, it's like, oh, my God. There are all these... 
women who are having a good time. <laughs> so around 10.45, then I would switch. You switch it. I'd switch. Okay, now we're going to the club. You know, now if you want to bump and grind against someone, <laughs> this is... Nice. <laughs> and some of the other DJs like Craig and whatnot, they wouldn't record dead or alive playing that sort of this is good like okay you, you do you man i'm just trying to put you guys out of business so <laughs> <laughs> uh, <sighs> all right so now into what you're doing uh what you started two years ago um how has your perspective changed since starting the worldwide supply federation um how has my perspective in, in what in what sense well um you you were mostly in the financial sector yeah and coming from the immigrant background yep. uh yep. that's like one of the gold they're like uh, according to the parents of like yes that's yeah, that's what we're going want. to good going to that's finance good. yeah that's yeah, a good yeah. one for the child and yeah then, so when you say well i'm moving to supply chain supply chain what is that so, so you know so i think i mean I, I i remember when i remember when i um when i told my mom uh, i wanted to major in math and physics <laughs> And she was like, what will you do? <laughs> what will you do with a degree in math and physics? Um, you know, but I've always had the good fortune that because my parents trusted me enough to send me off to secondary school and to basically trust me to make my own decisions yeah. that I've I've had that good fortune since I was since I was a kid. So in terms of perspective I've never necessarily thought that a career in finance is the is the end all and be all. I mean, the the thing that I really love to do is research. Um, and in secondary school, I realized that I would probably enjoy doing research to enable uh, investment decisions or decisions about how to deploy resources in a business. So that's basically the underlying the underlying thing. And fortunately, after I finished business school and for the decade I spent at KC Holdings and then KC Ventures, uh, that allowed me to build to build experience uh, doing that and then studying for the CFA exams. Um, also, like I said, I've watched my mom and uh, later on my dad, first my mom, but later on my dad when he quit teaching at the university to team up with my mom. I've watched them build uh, businesses uh, business, uh, businesses from home. So I have a, I, th I, th I think I have a very um, good understanding of the struggles that entrepreneurs and business people go through when they're starting from scratch. Um, now, that being said, it's one thing to observe other people doing it it's a completely different thing to be doing it, to be doing it yourself. Doing it yourself. Yeah. Uh, but because I've seen other people go through the process, um, uh, it's given me uh, this understanding that, uh, you know, you build something that, hopefully you're building something that you can be proud of in the future. And 
you might succeed. And if you succeed, that's fantastic. Um, but you might also fail. And if you fail, that is not the end of the world. I think as long as as long as you can say you gave it your best shot and your best effort, I think that's really all that that's really all that matters. Indeed. I think there's there's um one thing that I don't think we we do a good job of I understand wanting best for our kids. But I, I think we need to also let it be known that it's okay to fail. You, you know, talking about talking about that, uh, there was a period in secondary school in Xavier when my academic performance was shit. I mean, compared to my mm-hmm. acad- my performance before that time, but my academic performance was shit. It was so bad that something like three months before the WIAC exams, the O-levels, the school administration had, a, they called a staff meeting to discuss Brian's, to discuss <laughs> Brian's... Okay. Acad- that, that's, that's crisis <laughs> level. Discuss, that's, that's crisis discuss, level right there. To discuss Brian's academic performance. And they were worried, they were worried that I was going to disgrace... I was going to disgrace the school. school. (laughs) They were worried that I was going to disgrace the school. So they had a conversation. The staff members had a conversation, and they decided that even though the time was so limited, the syllabus is designed for three years, Mm. three years of studying for the syllabus to prepare for the standardized exam. Even though we were down to like three months or maybe four, four months, they felt it was better for me to abandon mathematics and science, which is what I had been preparing for, and instead to switch over to like history, literature, and geography, and whatnot. Wow. They they thought my performance was so awful that I had a better chance. And they were like, you know, we know he can do it, because if you look at his, the previous years, He's capable of, it's just whatever is going on right now. So then the, so then the rector called me to, to his office and said, hey, Brian, you know, blah, 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 blah. We had a conversation. This is what he thinks. So first he tried to couch it. He was like, Brian, can I ask you a question? Why are you studying, you know, mathematics and science? I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, oh, you, you know, well, wh- why are you studying mathematics and science? I said, that's what I want to study. He said, oh, your parents didn't uh, help you decide. And I said, no, by the time my parents knew what I had decided to study, it was a year later and there wasn't much that they could do about it. You know, I don't communicate with them. I'm, so, no, it's entirely my choice. This is what I want to study. And he said, well, you know, blah, 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 the school, we had a discussion and this is what we think. So think about it. I said, I can tell you right now, I'm not going to, I'm not going to switch. So um, then I had, then I had a, uh, then I had a discussion with my class teacher and he said, yes, the rest of the staff members think you should, you should uh, switch. I don't think you should. And the PE teacher also said he didn't think I should switch. But they, but the my class teacher, Father Conrad Bayo, made me commit to something. He said, I want you to commit that between now and the exam, you're going to work as hard as possible, and we'll just see what happens. And I think if you give it your all and focus, I think, you, I think you'll be fine. So I, I did that. 
and you know my results <laughs> at the end was one of the best was one of I, I got a division one with with distinction wow which is you really can't do much better than a division <laughs> one with, you can't do much better than a division one with distinction that's beautiful um, so so now because we got a few more minutes left um now that you've been in supply chain in the supply chain space for a little bit do you think it's about time that we start to introduce supply chain concepts at junior or high school or outright start teaching supply chain the same way we introduce kids to coding and programming today in our schools? Because um, I bring this question because uh, I use myself as an example. Uh, the, the very first official mm -hmm. job, even though I didn't get paid per se, uh, I, I was promised to be paid, but I didn't get paid, mm -hmm. was uh, take this money, take this fabric, go to the largest market in West Africa, which was yeah. uh, um, in, in um, damn, I keep forgetting the market's name. It was close to Dubai in, in Ibadan. Mm -hmm. Go there and get a bunch of fabrics and how to figure out to negotiate that there is harassment. They harass you. They yeah. like, literally drag you into the stores and you yeah. fight with the the vendors and i went through all that and i got the fabrics and I actually got it cheaper than the prices that i was told to pay to pay yeah for each fabric and that was the first official job which is part of supply chain that, yeah that's that's but i was procurement yeah but i will <laughs> never know i will go through the navy or i've worked so on three continents and yep. do procurement f for the navy yeah come out go through university and then finally find out about supply chain and then, oh, I've been doing this all my life. Yeah. Without realizing that I've done a whole bunch of supply chain stuff. Yeah. I've been yeah. doing it since I was a teenager. Yeah. And there are a whole bunch of people who do not realize that they've been doing a whole lot of supply stuff chain. like that yeah. Yeah. in their lives. But when they get out of the university, like I was telling my niece, she got out of university. She went to university in uh, Kumasi. Yep. And she was telling me that oh, the job she applies to in, in uh, Nigeria wants 10 years of experience. I said, girl, you have that 10 years of experience, of experience. already. Yeah. If you start calculating all the things you've been doing, yeah. you have it already. She yeah. wouldn't, she's like, but I can't write that. I can't tell them that. I said, yes, you can. So I'm like, that's why I brought this question. Like, should supply chain be taught in, um, should, uh, should, should it, is it about time we start introducing something like that in, in high school? You know, I haven't thought about it from that perspective, but I think it's a I think it's a great question and I also think it's a great idea. Like, you know, our tagline at the uh Worldwide Supply Chain Federation is the world is a supply chain. Yes. And um I think so there's an interesting uh there's interesting data from a site I think it's called the world the world our world in data. And I was doing research for an essay that me and Lisa wrote called Our World is a Supply Chain. And the from the time people started recording this data to 1975, the world's population went from something like 190 million people to 4 billion people. So... 1,975 years, world's population goes up to 4 billion. Mm -hmm. From 1975 to 2050, that's 75 years. Yeah. 
1975 to 2050. Projections are that the world's population <coughs> projections are that the world's population will go up to 10 billion people. So 1975 years population goes up to 4 billion people. 75 years after that population goes up to 10 billion people. That's a lot. Supply chains anywhere in the world are going to be under a lot of pressure. Yes. And so I think, you know, people, so the professionals need to, yes, people, the professionals need to understand supply chain and so on and so forth. But I think uh, even more generally, everyone should have a basic understanding of what supply chains are, why they matter, how what we do affects supply chains around the world so our consumption patterns uh you know whether how you decide to take a shower how does that affect the the supply chains for water and so on and, and so forth i think i think that's a fantastic idea um we we just need someone to lobby the politicians <laughs> we need someone to lobby the politicians to pass it to to make it law um yeah Yep. All right. So, um, final question. Yep. Um, which I always end with for every guest. So, what is one mantra or life lesson or a quote that um, you, Brian, live by, or you've gotten someone has given you an advice, someone gives you that you go by? It could be one of those, or maybe something you got from a book that you read. I know you like to read lots of books. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, it could be something you lifted from a book or just or maybe an advice your grandfather gave you. It could be one of those. I think my favorite, the one, the one I'll talk about is uh, St. Francis of Assisi, um, who says, uh, first, do what is necessary. No, for... First do what is necessary, I think. Then do what is possible. Mm -hmm. And very soon you'll be doing the impossible. Something something like that. First do what is necessary. Yeah, first do what is necessary, then do what is possible. And then uh, and very soon you'll be doing the impossible. It's, it's something along those lines. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But it, it goes back to this idea that you really have you really don't have an excuse right that if you want to if you want to do something sure you might not have all the resources that you think you need to right now to make it into this wonderful uh uh super uh, uh vision that you ultimately want to create but start uh, start somewhere start small Right. Start with the start with the smallest thing that you can possibly get done with the resources you have, given the constraints that you face right now. And as you work on that, and as you experience some success, then you'll realize that you 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 actually can do more. Right. So from doing what's necessary, given your constraints, you just you realize that there's more that's possible given yes. the resources you have. 
And you have to go through those two steps before you can accomplish the grand vision, the grand vision. Too, too many times I see people who, you know, if I can't build this grand vision in one swoop, mm-hmm. I'm not even going Let to, I'm try. not even going to, to try. <laughs> and I just wonder how many people don't, uh, don't accomplish the things that they would like to accomplish because, because of that attitude. So, you know, it's, you really don't have an excuse. Just start start somewhere, start to today, start now. Um, All right. That's a good place to end on. And uh, definitely we'll have to do a part two and cover some extra topics. Uh, thank you for coming on the show, Brian. Well, the, the issue with, with the part two is will you arrive? I will arrive. <laughs> I, will, I was going to get to that. I was going to get to that. But all right, it, it's your day. It's your day to shine. It's your day to shine. All right. Um, one last thing. Um, do you have any plugins you would like to give? Uh, you, you know, if if people are interested in in supply chain, um, uh, we the Worldwide Supply Chain Federation and the New York Supply Chain Meetup are open open uh, communities so we we say if people are obsessively enthusiastic about the future of supply chains they should they should come check us out uh i'm on twitter at my full name <laughs> I'll, I'll add it i'll add I'll, I'm, on, I'll. I'm on twitter at my, at my full name so so that's one way that people can find me or the new york supply chain meetup is at T-N-Y-S-E-M uh, or people can also type in the world is a supply chain dot com and, and that should take them to our website alright yeah. and I'll add all those links uh, when I release the episode yeah. thank you alrighty thank you all for joining us and I'll see you at the next episode thanks for listening to White Label American if you enjoyed the show we'll appreciate if you rate review and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. If you have any questions, comments, or have someone who will be a good guest on the show, or you want to be on the show, send us a message at whitelabelamerican at gmail.com. And make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at White Label American. Thank you for your support.